Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that you would speak. Speak to us now. So open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. We ask you to do this again, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Last night, I found a self-help article on a website uh, called medium.com. And the article had this title. It was titled this. It said, what's the point of everything? You are. You are the point. I looked at this title and I thought, well, that doesn't sound very promising, but I read on anyway. And among other things, the article said this, and I'm going to read to you a little bit. It says, when you think of having good emotional health, terms like happiness, self-esteem, self-confidence, optimism, and mental toughness likely come to mind. You might not, however, consider ideas of self-acceptance and contentment. Isn't contentment what we are all seeking? Contentment is the place where we don't need anything. We're completely satisfied as we are, as our life is. Think of how many things you do each day in an effort to feel more content. We spend a lot of our day trying to feel more content. However, these things aren't the path to radical contentment. The real secret is self-acceptance. And then the article goes on from there to explain what self-acceptance is and how self-acceptance really is the bottom line to all emotional health. But here's the question I would ask. Is self-acceptance really the key to happiness and contentment even in this life? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not arguing against contentment or happiness. I'm certainly not arguing for self-loathing or something like that. I think there's a way that we can be self-loathing in a way that is self-destructive, in fact. But does that imply then that the antidote to self-loathing is then self-acceptance? Now, I guess the devil is in the details of what the article means by self-acceptance. As I looked through the article, it was fairly, had a fairly secular approach to these questions, as you might expect. And as I looked through, the question that came to mind to me and its exposition of self-acceptance was this. How does self-acceptance help me with the ultimate issues of life? In other words, how does accepting myself and everything that I am help me to face death? The biggest and most anxiety-inducing thing that we face in our lives. As it turns out, According to the way this article explained it, it really doesn't address that at all. Contrary to much popular wisdom, the antidote to unhappiness and contentment, and really the key to happiness, the key to contentment, is not self-esteem, but God-esteem, ultimately. It's not so much our self-regard that's the issue as it is our, our regard for God that is ultimately the issue. Unless there is someone or something that can deliver us from what our greatest problem is, and our greatest problem is this judgment that God has put on us, upon our sin, called death. Unless there is someone or something that can see us through that, 
then really what's the point of anything? I mean, what if you did accept yourself and then you still died in judgment at the end? What I'm saying is, is that we've got to have something more if we're going to deal with ultimate things. If you haven't already, I want you to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 29 to 34. Last week, what we looked at was Paul's teaching that Christ is the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. He is the first born from among the dead, as it were. And Christ is therefore ruling over all of his enemies. The last enemy, obviously, is death. But Christ is ruling. The big question in the passage this week, in verses 29 to 34, is Paul is tackling the question, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then what is the point of anything? Here, Paul's going to argue that there are at least three things that we're called to do. Three things that we're called to do, and that many, many people actually do these things, not even realizing that they're called to do them. But these are the things that we're called to do that would be absolutely pointless if there were no resurrection from the dead. Those three things are hope, suffering, and faithfulness. But if there were no resurrection from the dead, there would be nothing to hope for, nothing to suffer for, and nothing to be faithful for. So as you look at the, at the passage in verse, 25, in verse 29, we see if there's no resurrection, there would be nothing to hope for. Everybody look at verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? Now let me say this verse has given preachers fits for probably the history of its being preached by preachers, okay? At first blush, it sounds like some of the believers at Corinth were being baptized in behalf of other people who had already died. What is that all about? But there's a lot of questions this leaves us. Like, number one, uh, who are these dead people? Were they unbaptized believers or were they unbelievers? Uh, we don't know. Paul doesn't say. Were they being baptized for family members who had died or for strangers? We don't know. Paul doesn't say. Um, what did they think that they would achieve by being baptized for someone else? Well, we don't know. Paul doesn't really get into the, any of that. He doesn't answer any of those questions. On top of that, there's a lot that's unclear here because there's nothing else in the New Testament about being baptized for someone else. This is not what the New Testament teaches about baptism. Nowhere in the Bible do you find anyone being baptized for someone else. Moreover, you don't even find it anywhere in the early church. So in the immediate generations right after the apostles, nobody was doing this. The only people who were baptizing in behalf of the dead were heretical groups, like the Montanists, if you've ever heard of those. But there's no trace of this practice among any of the Orthodox, even in the early church. And since there's no precedent for this, you see a lot of commentators, a lot of preachers, they've come to the conclusion that maybe Paul means something other than what he appears to be saying at first blush. And so as a result of this, there are over 40 different interpretations of what the baptism in behalf of the dead uh, is referring to and what it might mean. Um, that many different interpretations is unusual, okay? And it's evidence of how puzzling this verse has been to so many readers and even preachers over the years. 
So I'm not going to go through and rehearse all those 40-plus different interpretations. That would be too much for a sermon like this. Some of them aren't even worth paying attention to. But it is worth looking, I think, for a few minutes at some of the more popular interpretations and then trying to explain to you which one I think is, is the correct one. Now, a lot of these different interpretations uh, rely on taking one or more of the words in a less than literal way. So the words in, in that phrase, baptized on behalf of the dead. And so if you take one or more of those words less than literally, you come up with different interpretations. So for example, one view suggests that maybe Paul is not talking about literal baptism here. Now think about this. After all, what's the context? The context is about suffering for the gospel. And Jesus himself used the term baptism as a metaphor for suffering. Do you remember this? Do you remember when James and John asked Jesus if they could sit with Jesus in glory, one at his right and one at his left hand, and Jesus responds, you do not know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? Obviously, he wasn't talking about a literal baptism. He's talking about the suffering up to and including the cross that he was going to undergo. That's in Mark 10, 38. Jesus says a similar thing in Luke 12, 50. He says, but I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. And so when Jesus used baptism in these instances, he's using it as a metaphor for his suffering. And so some people are saying back in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 29, maybe Paul is using the same metaphor here. Maybe he's just talking like Jesus. If so, then what that would mean is that Paul is saying something like this. If Christ is not raised, then why are you suffering for those who are still dead in their sins? Now, it's kind of uh, cogent and makes sense as an interpretation, but um, I'll be honest with you, appealing to the Gospels like that is a bit of a stretch. It's kind of remote to the current context, I think, in 1 Corinthians 15. So I think that one's kind of unlikely. Here's another view. Another view says that baptized in behalf of the dead doesn't mean in place of the dead or for the benefit of the dead. It means with a view towards or for the sake of the dead. So, for example, if a mother, a Christian mother, were to say to her child on her deathbed, I want you to be saved and to become a Christian. She passes away. If that child, after she dies, becomes a Christian and begins to seek baptism, that child might wish to be baptized for her sake. In other words, um, it's, it's a kind of baptism that's dedicated to somebody. It's an affectionate way to dedicate your baptism to, to the dearly departed. Some people think that's what Paul's talking about here. Okay, baptized for the sake of the dead, you know, in honor of some person that you love that's gone on before. I think the problem with that view is that in behalf of that prepositional phrase doesn't really mean that. Um, so I don't think that interpretation is very compelling either. It's orthodox, but I don't think it's right. Here's another view. Another view says that baptized in behalf of the dead, uh, we should take that very literally. And Paul is literally saying that some of the Corinthian believers are being baptized in behalf of people who have already died for their benefit. And so people who take that view typically recognize that that practice, if people were doing that in the church, being baptized for people who had already died, that would be kind of an oddity. And it's something that was not known anywhere really outside of Corinth. So it wasn't something that was happening in all the New Testament churches. It wasn't happening in the early church, but it was something very odd happening in Corinth. 
And commentators have different explanations for why people might have done this and what it might mean. Some people suggest, for example, that baptism for the dead, if this were, is what it was, it might have happened whenever a Christian died before they themselves could be baptized. And in those cases, maybe someone who was still living would be baptized in their behalf because they didn't get a chance to be baptized before they, they, were, they died. And so in those kinds of cases, someone else could stand in for them after the fact and be vicariously baptized on their behalf. What benefit they thought this might bring to the dead person, Paul doesn't say. Nevertheless, that's how some people take this passage. Again, the problem with that view is that there's no practice like that in the New Testament nor in the earliest church. So if they were really doing this, it doesn't appear to be something that Paul is actually commending or endorsing. He would simply be showing, if, if this were the case, Paul's not commending it or endorsing it. He would simply be showing that their practice of baptism is out of step with their denial of the resurrection. You remember the issue from verse 12. How is it that some of you are saying that there is no resurrection? So essentially he'd be saying, if you don't believe in the resurrection from the dead, why are you being baptized for people who are dead? Don't you know that baptism signifies a believer's resurrection through Christ? Why signify their resurrection if you don't believe they're going to be resurrected? So if there's no resurrection, then there's no future hope for any of us. For those who have, even for those who've died in Christ, they're dead. They will stay dead forever. And a rite that signifies a fictional resurrection is pointless. So why be baptized for the sake of the dead if there's no resurrection? He's just trying to point out their inconsistency without trying to explain what it means or even defend it. Here's one last view. Okay, I've given you three views. Here's one last view. This is a different one from the first three. This last view says that baptized in behalf of the dead is not about being baptized in behalf of someone else's dead body, but in behalf of your own dead body. Now think about this. Think about the context that we've been studying. What has Paul been talking about and saying about death? Well, in verse 21, you remember Paul said this, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Paul teaches that we inherit death from Adam. All of us do. And we're already, all of us, under this death sentence. Every one of us is, as it were, a dead man walking. All of us. In fact, Paul says as much in Romans chapter 8 and verse 10. He says, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin... The spirit is life because of righteousness. So Paul speaks as if our body's mortality makes us as good as dead already. And so perhaps that's the key to understanding this. Perhaps Paul is speaking that way here again in verse 29 of chapter 15. If so, the meaning of the verse would be something like this. If there is no resurrection at all, then why are some people being baptized in behalf of their own dead bodies? In other words... In this interpretation, baptism signifies the death and resurrection, not only of Jesus, but also of all of us who are in him. If, if we aren't really going to be raised, then why signify our resurrection through baptism? Baptism would be a lie if we were, were to do that, if there weren't really a resurrection. So I've given you... I told you there's over 40 plus interpretations. I've given you four. I think it's hard to be certain exactly which one is correct, okay? So we're not going to split the church over our different interpretations of this, okay? 
we'll have a, a certain amount of humility about this, and the Lord will set us all straight when we get to heaven. My own personal view is that probably one of the latter two explanations are the most likely ones, and, and I'm actually most convinced probably by that last one. So that latter view, the one that interprets bab baptism in behalf of the dead is baptism in behalf of your own as good as dead bodies. I think that that interpretation has a number of advantages to it. Number one, it fits the context where Paul has just informed them that in Adam all die. So we're all dead and we're all as, as good as dead as it were because of this death sentence over our bodies. It also, it fits with what Paul says in Romans 8.10 that the body is dead because of sin. Also, it fits with what Paul says elsewhere about the meaning of baptism, that baptism is not something you can do for other people. It's something that's done for yourself to symbolize your own union with Christ's death and resurrection. Also, this view um, is the unanimous view of the early Greek fathers of the church. The earliest Christian pastors who read and wrote in, in the Greek language, that's how they understood these verses. So uh, there's one early Christian named John Chrysostom who lived during the fourth century, he has an entire sermon on this verse, and he says that Paul's words in verse 29 are actually recalling a baptismal confession. In any way, this last view was, was the view that he took on, on this text. But whether you take John Chrysostom's view or the view that, that this is literally talking about some people being baptized vicariously on behalf of others who've died, it, it, I, it, it's not really that important to Paul's main point. Paul's main point is clear. Baptism assumes death and resurrection. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then baptism becomes a pointless rite, and it falsely represents something that will not happen. The dead will not, in fact, be raised. So it's as if Paul is saying, your practice of baptism, whatever it is, it's completely inconsistent with your denial of the resurrection because baptism is a giant neon sign proclaiming resurrection. By the way, when Paul talks about baptism and even the early church fathers, when they talk about baptism, they're not talking about sprinkling, are they? Um, I, could read, I have a passage here, but I don't have time to read it, a passage from John Chrysostom where it's very clear the baptism they're talking about is where you're putting someone in the water and bringing them up out of the water. It's immersion. And um, it, you can't, if you're putting people in the water and taking them out of the water, you're symbolizing putting them into the grave and taking them out of the grave. That doesn't make any sense if there's no real resurrection. You might as well just leave them in the water if there's no resurrection. Why would you be proclaiming resurrection out of one side of your mouth while at the same time saying there's no resurrection out of the other side of the mouth, out of, of your mouth every time you do a baptism. Baptism points forward to our future hope in Christ. But we have no future hope if there is no resurrection. You see what I'm saying? So the practice of baptism is inconsistent if you're saying there's no resurrection. Uh, when I was a junior in high school, uh, a friend of mine named DJ informed me that through a complex of extraordinary events, our high school had landed one of the biggest pop groups in the country to be the house band for our prom that year, okay? It was a group called the New Kids on the Block. Anybody remember them? So the, they were the biggest boy band in our lifetime up until this point. And so my friend DJ tells me about this. 
Now, at the time, most guys, including me, didn't care about New Kids on the Block because boy bands were for girls, okay? So, um, so when I heard this news, um, even though I really wasn't into them, I, th I still thought it was incredible. Um, it would, it, these, this famous group was coming to our town. This was going to put our little town on the map. This would be the biggest thing that ever, ever happened to uh, DeRitter, Louisiana. We would be rubbing shoulders with celebrities at our prom. I, I couldn't believe it. In front of, I was really starstruck by this when I heard about it. So it was supposed to be a secret, but I went around. I started going around to my closest friends and telling them about it. <laughs> New kids on the block are coming. Don't tell anybody, though. You know how that went. I began devising how I could get into the middle of the prom planning committee so that I would have a chance to meet the band, you know. It was absolutely thrilling to me that these guys were coming to our prom. This went on for days, okay, until one of my friends put me out of my misery. It turns out that the whole thing was a joke. DJ was pulling my leg, and when he saw that I actually believed him, he just expanded it to include the whole school. Basically, he went to everybody. Everybody, joke was on me. And so he made sure that key people would confirm his story when I came to them. And so I believed this for I don't know how many days. Even teachers were in on it. Denny thinks that new kids are coming. you got to keep it going. So I look like the biggest idiot running around telling people about the coming glory of the new kids coming to our school. And they weren't coming. Everybody knew the whole thing was a hoax. But what made it even more pathetic was I was visibly excited about a boy band. It was terrible. Oh, man, they got me really, really good. But the only thing that would have been even more pathetic is if I had been in on the joke and still behaved that way. In other words, if I knew that they weren't coming, and yet I still went around take, talking up the glories of new kids on the block and how I was going to be close friends with them or something. It's foolish and inconsistent to behave like they're coming to town when I know that they're not. You see what I'm saying? That's what I think Paul is getting at here with these Corinthians. He's trying to tell them that it's foolish to behave in ways that are hopeful about life after death when you don't believe that there is such a thing as a resurrection. It's ridiculous to do anything, much less a baptism, that's hopeful about life after death when you don't believe in rising from the dead. It's ridiculous to do that. So do you see what Paul's doing here? He's pointing out their inconsistency. He's saying to them, if you don't believe in the hope of the resurrection, why do you keep behaving as if there is one when you baptize? Now think about this. Are there things that you and I do now that make no sense at all if there's no life after death? Are there things that people in general do now, people who don't believe in the resurrection? Are there things that they do in their lives that don't make any sense if there's no such thing as life after death? Now I assume that most people in here are members of the church, you believe in the resurrection? I wonder, though, if there's any atheists or agnostics here, or maybe some listening over the Internet. If there are, here's a question. If God does not exist and there's no life after death, then why do you in different ways behave as if there are moral absolutes in the world? As if what we do with our lives now matters for any. In other words, if our lives are never going to be weighed in the balance against some kind of divine standard or absolute standard, if we just live and die, and then that's it for us, why does it matter what we do in our time on earth? How could anyone say that any of us should or shouldn't do anything with our lives? 
In other words, there can be no oughts in an atheistic universe. There can be no moral imperatives if there is no judgment. If we're just the latest iteration of evolutionary progress, then might makes right. It's the survival of the fittest. On what basis could anyone condemn me if I just took what I wanted and did what I wanted whenever I wanted to do it, no matter how selfish or how it harmed other people? But the truth is nobody lives that way, do they? Go to someone who doesn't believe in God and who doesn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Steal their watch. See if they tell you that's wrong or not. Do you see how that's inconsistent, though, to hold to such an imperative, a moral imperative, when there is no judgment, when there is no God, when there is no life to reckon with after death? Every time a person who doesn't believe in God or the resurrection, every time that person expresses an ought He's completely out of step with the atheism that he professes to believe. But every time he does express an ought, he is showing in spades the inconsistency of his denial of God and of the hope that God gives to us through Christ. But you know what? Atheists aren't the only ones who can be inconsistent about these things. Sometimes believers behave in ways that are absolutely inconsistent with our practice of baptism. How many of you have ever feared your own death? Well, everybody's got to raise their hand on that one. Is that kind of fear consistent with a belief in your own resurrection? Is it consistent with the practice of baptism? Or does that fear reveal an area in your heart where you aren't trusting the Lord? That's what we talked about in last week's sermon, isn't it? If there is no resurrection of the dead, there really is nothing to hope for, and baptism really is a farce no matter how you practice it. But it's not baptism that would be the problem in that case, and it's not resurrection hope that would be the problem in that case. It's our hearts that are the problem in that case and that need to be strengthened in the hope of the resurrection. But if there is no resurrection, there is nothing to hope for. That's what verse 29 is talking about. And the practice of baptism would be totally inconsistent. But not only nothing to hope for, verses 30 through 32 says there would be nothing to suffer for. Everybody look at verse 30. Why are we in danger every hour? Remember that when Paul says we in this passage, he's typically referring to himself in solidarity with the other apostles of Christ. If Christ hasn't been raised, then why would the apostles be risking their lives for what they knew to be a lie? If it is, was ridiculous for me to be running around my high school telling everyone that this group was coming to town, how much more pathetic would it be to suffer for such a farce? And that's what Paul is, is, is saying here. Why would I suffer all the time for something I knew to be a lie? Nobody does that. No, his willingness to suffer bears witness to the fact that he really did see Jesus alive. And he really did believe that Jesus was going to raise him up also. So verse 31, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. Now, I, just to be honest with you here, I think the ESV's translation can be a little bit misleading because there's nothing really in the Greek text to suggest that Paul is protesting something in the way that we usually use that word. On the contrary, he's actually affirming something. So I think a better rendering would go something like this. He's saying this, every day I face death, I swear, brothers, not I protest, but I swear, brothers, by my boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
What does he mean by that? He means he's trying to say, look, brothers, I am facing death every day in order to preach the gospel. I'm not making this fact up that I'm suffering. In fact, I swear it's true. I swear by that which is dearest to me, the fact that you are in Christ and you are in Christ because of the very labors that have exposed me to this danger of death on a daily basis. So it's like Paul is taking an oath here to confirm his sufferings to them. Why? Because he wants to confirm the resurrection to them. His sufferings are a testimony that he really believes in the resurrection, that he has seen the risen Christ. Look at verse 32. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, when Paul says he faced wild beasts in Ephesus, he's not referring to literal beasts. Okay, you can look in vain in Acts for an example of Paul fighting literal beasts. Okay? Um, and it's not a reference to you know, somebody being thrown into the, like the Colosseum, right where they had to face lions in the Colosseum. Roman citizens, they couldn't do that to Roman citizens, and Paul was a Roman citizen. So what does he mean by fighting wild beasts in Ephesus? Well, in the Old Testament, various kinds of beasts are, appear as metaphors for the adversaries of God's people. Psalm chapter 22. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. Psalm 35. Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue my soul from their ravages, my only life from the lions. Psalm 57. My soul is among lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire, even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. So even Paul himself, when he talks about his adversaries in other verses, like in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verses 16 and 17, he does this same kind of a thing. He says this, At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me in order that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the lion's mouth. There it is again, the lion's mouth. So when Paul talks about fighting with wild beasts in Ephesus, I think what he's talking about He's speaking metaphorically of the adversaries that he encountered in his ministry, about those who opposed him and even persecuted him for preaching the gospel. That was happening to him almost everywhere he went, but here he specifies that it happened in Ephesus. And that's, in fact, we know from chapter 16, that's where he's writing this letter from. He wrote the book of 1 Corinthians from Ephesus. So it's hard to know exactly what episode of persecution he might be referring to in this case. But we do know that Ephesus is in Asia Minor. And Paul talks about the suffering that came upon him in Asia. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and verses 8 through 10, Paul says this, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. So the suffering that he went through was a suffering he thought was going to lead to his death. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death, and he will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope. And yes, he will deliver us. 
So the beasts that he encountered in Asia were wild indeed. They almost killed him. And so Paul is asking, back to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's asking rhetorically, what good is it for me to risk my life if this is the only life that I have? That doesn't profit me anything. On the contrary, it would cost him everything. But not if the resurrection is true. But notice what Paul says in the second half of the verse. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Are you following what he's saying here? If there is no resurrection from the dead, don't do anything that would risk your life. Instead, you ought to try to squeeze every bit of pleasure that you can out of your life. And so to make this point, he actually quotes, you notice the quotation marks? He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 22 and verse 13, which we heard read right before uh, the sermon. Isaiah 22, 13 says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If there is no resurrection, don't serve God, serve your appetites. That's what you ought to do. But I think it's absolutely crucial that we understand the context of the verse that he's quoting in Isaiah 22. In Isaiah 22, the Jews in Jerusalem are facing siege and annihilation at the hands of the Assyrians. How do they respond? Well, Isaiah 22, 12 to 14 tells us how they responded. Therefore, in that day, the Lord God of hosts called you to weeping and wailing, to shaving the head and to wearing sackcloth, meaning God called them to repentance when the Assyrians stood at the gate to destroy them. Instead of repentance, it says in verse 13, instead there's gaiety and gladness, killing of cattle and slaughtering of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. People are saying, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we may die. But the Lord of hosts revealed himself to me. Surely this iniquity shall not be forgiven you until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. When God threatened his people with the Assyrians, instead of repenting, they partied. When faced with their death, they thought, let's just eat and drink and get all of our pleasures. And get our thrills while we can because we're going to die soon. They decided the best thing they could do was to do everything they could to serve their own appetites until death overtook them. In other words, they were behaving like there was no God with whom they had to answer to. So think about this. How would you respond if I were to tell you that seven days from now, America was going to be destroyed in a nuclear holocaust? There's a showdown between Russia and the United States. And it's unlike the Cuban Missile Crisis, neither side blinks. Both sides let their nukes go. Every major city and military base in the United States, including our city, is vaporized. One way or another, all of us are going to die beginning in seven days. How would you respond to that? Does it enter your mind, you know, I better fulfill all my appetites before my time is up next week? Is that the first thing that comes to your mind? Or do you respond by turning to the Lord in repentance and humility? How you respond to that dire situation reveals everything that's most important about you because it's revealing how you feel about death. But guess what? You don't have to wait for a nuclear holocaust to find out what's most important about you. Because every single one of us already knows that we're going to die. And just because it's maybe some years down the road further than something next week, perhaps, we all already know 
what's most important about us because we all already know we're going to die. Every single one of us knows this, but not every single one of us is responding in the same way. There are some who are willing to suffer for Christ, even though they know that life is short. They are willing to suffer because they believe that Christ will give their lives back to them in the age to come. But there are others who are living like suffering is to be avoided at all costs. They are living now as if maintaining their own ease and comfort is the most important thing in the world. In other words, they're living as if this is the only life they have. And they had better spend it on their pleasures because it will be over and then it's gone forever. You can already tell what's most important about a person by how they're living their life right now. Does your life reflect a belief that you will live on the other side of death? That's the question. Or are you so self-serving and God-ignoring that you communicate to everyone that this life is all that you have? That's a tough question for all of us, isn't it? Does our life reveal that suffering is worth it? Because we believe that God is going to raise us up at the end. And we actually don't really lose anything when we suffer in this life. Because the suffering of the present time isn't worthy to be compared to the glory that's to be revealed in us, as Paul says in Romans 8. But if there's no resurrection, there's nothing to hope for, and there's actually nothing to suffer for. But finally, there would be nothing to be faithful for. Everybody look at verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. You have to understand verse 33 in light of the end of verse 32. Verse 32 suggests that there's a connection between denying the resurrection and living unfaithfully. If the dead are not raised, you shouldn't worry about serving the Lord. Serve your own appetites. There's no point in being faithful to God if this, is, if this life is all that we have. But if you look at verse 33, Paul's making another connection by quoting a line from an ancient play by a guy named Menander. That quotation's from an ancient play. He's saying this, don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. What's that mean? I think it means that he says, don't be deceived. They're prone to deception. They're prone to deception because they're listening to bad company. They're listening to influences from the outside of the church, which are taking their minds off of the resurrection of the dead. So they're influenced by this bad company, but who's the bad company? Well, I think you find out in the next verse. Verse 34, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. Stop sinning, wake up from being influenced by this bad company. Who's the bad company? Look at it. For some have no knowledge of God. That's the bad company. There are some people who have no knowledge of God. Who would that be? It'd be unbelievers. It'd be the pagans in the world. These people who have no knowledge of God are influencing you. I say this to your shame. Why are they influencing you? Their denial of resurrection. Remember when Paul was on Mars Hill? They listened to Paul, right? Until he talked about what? Resurrection. Then they shamed him out of there. Get out of here. That's crazy. In that kind of a context, it's easy to cave into the shame and just to say, well, maybe there is no resurrection. Maybe there's another way we can reconfigure this and have a Christianity that doesn't rely on a physical resurrection of bodies. We already saw this with chapter 6, that there was a connection between this denial of resurrection and their failure to be faithful. Remember in chapter 6, there's some guys 
going out and visiting prostitutes and they were saying, well, there's no resurrection of the dead, so God doesn't really care about bodies. He, in the future, he must not really care about what we do with our bodies now. Sure, we can go sleep with prostitutes. No problem. And Paul has to come in and go, wrong. But what was clear there in chapter 6 was that there was a connection between their denial of the resurrection and their fornication. And they were just being unfaithful. But if there's no resurrection, there's really no reason to be faithful, is there? That's the point. What we believe about resurrection reveals everything that's most important about us. If we don't believe in the resurrection, there's nothing to hope in, there's nothing to suffer for, there's nothing to be faithful for. All of this life is ultimately meaningless. So until resurrection, this truth that Jesus is raised and that therefore he promises to raise us, until resurrection grips our hearts, we will not be faithful to Christ, nor will we risk anything or lose anything for his kingdom. When people believe that this life is all we have, do you know what they do? They live for themselves. They don't love their neighbors. They don't love their enemies. They don't give their money and time away to serve others. They spend every moment serving themselves, and they don't take time to look beyond the horizon of their own interests. Why would they? They've got to eat and drink and be merry before they die. And unless and until you begin to see the promise of resurrection as more precious than anything, you won't live with the kind of large-hearted, full-throated love that God wants you to live with and to have towards other people. You will simply spend your life managing your own interests while ignoring God's interests. And that's what Paul is trying to say to them. This denial of the resurrection is, is a denial of an ultimate thing, but it affects your behavior right now. There's no point in faithfulness if there's no resurrection. So he's saying, brothers and sisters, it ought not to be this way. But it doesn't have to be this way because of verse 20. Remember verse 20? In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. If Christ is raised from the dead, and he is, then we can turn every one of those main points on its head. It's not that there's nothing to hope for. We have everything to hope for. It's not that there's nothing to so for, suffer for, but we have everything to gain from suffering. And it's not that there's nothing to be faithful for, but faithfulness to Christ is all that really matters in this life. So if you're here this morning and you are a believer in Jesus, you need to take heart. Jesus Christ is risen right now. And there is nothing that you lose in this life that you won't gain back and then some in the age to come. And you don't have to fear death. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus, you need to understand that you're a sinner and because of your sin, God has pronounced judgment over you. That's why you and every single person on the planet is under the sentence of death. The only way to be freed from this judgment is to accept the provision that God has made. He sent somebody to die vicariously for you on your behalf. Jesus. Jesus died so that you wouldn't have to. He was raised so that you could be raised. All you can do to get connected to this saving power, all you can do, you can't earn it, the only thing you can do is to believe. You turn away from your sin and you trust in Jesus and the Bible says that connects you 
to the saving power of Jesus so that you won't have anything to fear from death when the day finally comes. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray you'd use this word to transform us into the image of your own dear son. Lord, would you help us in our weakness not to fear death, but to have full faith in what you've done for us through Christ, that because he is raised, we will be raised as well. We have everything to hope for. We have every reason to suffer in behalf of the gospel. We have every reason to be faithful. Help us to realize this and give us power and witness and fruitfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.